Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the latest episode of the Aranax podcast, brought to you for Monday the 19th of June 2023. I'm Craig Eason, podcast host and maritime broadcaster. I'm also editor of the Fathom World website. Now, we all know that shipping is based on technology, heavy technology, and as an industry, it's dependent on the technology companies to develop the decarbonisation solutions so it can continue to carry customer cargoes around the world. There was probably once a time in history when ship owners had their own technology departments, but today, very few have that resource. Instead, they rely on the technology solution companies, such as the engine makers and the clean tech firms and other companies with the resources to invest in decarbonisation research and development on their behalf. Now, last week, the engine makers and other technology makers met for the Triennial Congress of CMAC. CMAC is the International Council on Combustion Engines. It's where the likes of MAN, Vatsila, WinGD, Mitsubishi and Hyundai and lots of researchers and developers and engineers come to discuss the latest findings. The meeting took place in Busan, South Korea and was the first CMAC Congress for four years, having been delayed due to the pandemic. But these are four years where a surprising amount has happened in shipping. So for Fathom World and Aranex podcast listeners, the CMAC Congress is an opportunity to get a sense of how the engineering firms believe the transformation of these technologies are developing. The sentiment at CMAC Congress also gives assurances or otherwise to ship owners and regulators, such as those who will meet in London in a week or two to discuss the levels of ambition and decarbonisation for the industry. Gavin Lipsith was in Busan for the Congress and has written a number of articles which can be found on the Fathom World website. He's also filed this report for the Aranex podcast from the Congress floor. How do you remove carbon emissions from an industry hooked on nearly 300 million tonnes of fossil fuel a year? One unconventional solution was spotted at the opening ceremony of CMAC Congress. Carbon was cut from Bo Serap Simonson's title on his introductory slide, announcing him instead as the CEO of the Maersk McKinney Moller Centre for Zero Shipping. But it will take more than words, or in this case their absence, to decarbonise shipping. The finale of Serap Simonson's keynote speech became a rallying call for the week. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Where does that leave an industry that needs to go both far and fast? The evidence at CMAC was that solutions are emerging and that the industry is finding a direction. However, no one should be under any illusion about how disruptive the change to zero carbon shipping will be. Here's Christoph Rofka, president of turbocharger company Acceleron's medium and low speed division, talking about the dramatic changes he anticipates for technology providers and ship operators in just the next seven years. We work with the hypothesis that by, by 2030, all new builds will be dual fuel capable. So one fuel is, okay. is net zero and the backup fuel is fossil. So that's just an assumption, you know, and, and we took it basically, we copied from these getting to three coalition, they make studies and so on, and they say if by 2030, 5% of the global fleet, the fuel, 5% of the, of the fuel used is, is, is net zero, then we are basically on a good track because it's, it's an S-curve learning. So we are ready for an exponential um, uptake. 
Um, and if, if, you, if you calculate a bit, I mean, if, if then from then any new build is, is dual fuel, um, you, you are, the industry is doing then quite fine for, for being net zero towards 2050. And if you, with this assumption, just I would say a year, maybe one and a half year ago, everyone would have said you are crazy. It's impossible. <laughs> but if you see where the order book is now for dual fuel engines, just last year, if you just look at the contracting last year, it was almost 50%. So I think now we are from, from one year to another, from being it's likely not possible, we are even ahead of this curve. You know, yeah. for, for me, it looks like it should be easy then by 2030 to 100%. Yeah. And, and maybe it's 95. It, it doesn't matter, but it's, it's, it helps at least us in the thought process. So what do we need to do to, to support this, you know, to, to catch up? And, and, and then there will be, I believe, players in the industry, the, the industry champions. By 2030, they already have the first or second learning curve incorporated in their portfolio. So, and, and, and they will gain business. Yeah. Um, and, and those who take a too conservative approach might not even have completely rolled out the initial version. So there is, there is now a market dynamic we, we have not seen for long, you know, and, yeah. and, and that makes it very exciting. But it's also so that no one can lean back because the, the, the champions of from yesterday might not be then the industry champions yes. uh, in, in, in 2030. With methanol orders flooding in and ammonia technology development advancing, the move to dual fuel is well underway. The scale-up of green fuel production, however, is not, with multiple experts highlighting the scale of the challenge, particularly the amount of renewable electricity that will be needed. In the absence of clarity on fuels, engine developers are having to think even beyond dual fuel capability. Here's Dominic Schneider, Vice President of R&D at two-stroke engine designer WinGD, explaining why he was to be found opening a panel on fuel cells on the last day of this engine-centric conference. We all talk about hydrogen as the base, the base fuel, but hydrogen has storage issues. So in merchant shipping, we have to look at derivates like methane, ammonia, methanol for green fuels. And these fuels are scarce, will become available very slow. So that means we have to do everything we can do on the propulsion plant on board the ship to make it more efficient. And here electrical devices come in and they can really help to further uh, squeeze down the energy consumption by better and more smart integration. The, the, the main engine size will gradually be reduced over time, so it's, it, in future it's really the question between fuel available, energy converter available, and, and of how much longer is there the internal combustion engine, to what size, size will matter in that respect, and what is it replaced for? And if you do have the integration system that controls the energy flows for the main propulsion, you, you, you can somehow control that. And the industry reacts fast to it. First movers, they are really looking into that and, and look into that particularly and specific for their own applications and operation patterns. And that makes the whole thing actually very interesting. With the main engine, the two-stroke slow-speed engine, we have the biggest energy converter on board, and the biggest energy consumer, chemical energy, hence the fuel. Mm. And if we can optimize the operation point of that engine with all the electrical devices uh, in its peripheral uh, environment uh, to a sweet spot where it's the best possible fuel consumption constantly, then, then we gain uh, a lot, actually. And that's what we try to show uh, here in this presentation. New technologies were discussed in detail across the Congress, from fuel capabilities to hybrid power to energy-saving technologies and digital optimization. But there was also a growing sense that new ways of applying technology are also needed. Faced with a zero emissions target that is barely one vessel lifespan away, 
conversation is turning to how existing ships, not just new ones, can be prepared for decarbonisation. So, first challenges for, for retrofits, there is uh, really, let's say, a good, uh, a good concept on the, uh, on the engine part, uh, but uh, when we retrofit, we retrofit a vessel, complete vessel. So, we need to integrate uh, fuels handling system. Philippe Renault, completely. a senior R&D manager at Container Line CMA CGM and a stalwart of CMAC, explored how retrofitted carbon capture could decarbonize the company's substantial LNG fuel fleet. But he made a wider point about applying new technologies. Vessels need to be prepared for upgrades from their initial design, and all technologies should be retrofittable to encourage wide uptake of emissions-reducing solutions. Something we say we can dream of uh, as a ship owner would be to, to have a ships riding on conventional fuels and all the drawing ready uh, for when we do the modifications. So that we know when we invest in, uh, in the assets that, okay, this is the asset we use up to next five, 10 years, depending on the uh, advance of the technology. And then, okay, this is how we retrofit the ships. So then we can already think about the financing. We can think about many things. We can have discussion with the shipyards. Um, it's Starting, do, doing a retrofit on existing ship is super, super challenging. Um, it, it costs a lot. Um, so the, most of the time the, the business case is not that good. If we want to have a significant penetration of this, uh, of this new energy, also to give um, perspective, to give traction to the investors when they would like to invest a massive plant for the production of these molecules, that okay we can ramp up as quickly so then if you place a big production site in this area okay then we accelerate the uh, entry of the ships a big ship owner calling for greater emphasis on vessel conversions should be a wake-up call to technology developers and ship designers retrofitting has benefits in terms of the sustainability of shipping lengthening the active life of vessels reducing early scrapping and reducing risk for ship owners Here's Sagram Nanda, General Manager of Product Management and Engineering at Vartzilla, explaining part of the rationale behind the company's emerging range of efficiency and fuel flexibility solutions for two-stroke engines on midlife vessels. A lot has happened in the last two years. There's a full thrust that uh, we need to decarbonize. And we simply can't wait till, uh, uh, till the end of the decade and we say uh, that the, the new fuels are there and uh, uh, new engines are there and we can actually then um, decarbonize now mm. uh, we have a step change you can't do a step change there has to be this gradual movement down and, and uh, the market has to accept that if you have to have a new build you cannot just build a big ship tomorrow or day after it is available and, and you know in the next few months uh, there are slots there's a shipbuilding industry that has to build ships and there's simply not enough capacity for them to build ships to that extent that we can decarbonize that's point one the second thing is that do we need to scrap a vessel which is less than 10 years old saying that okay fine you know uh, we scrap a 340,000 deadweight vessel because uh, it has got an engine which weighs about uh, 1000 tons but uh, it cannot burn a different type of fuel so we scrap all that steel uh, because of that and then we produce a lot of uh, do a lot of mining and produce steel to make it build a new vessel which is which also has a carbon footprint 
Um, so from a life cycle perspective, when you look at it, does it make sense? Answer is no. Hmm. Because you, we need to do something with the existing vessels. Um, and that's where the, the, the challenge comes in from a, from a customer perspective. The customer says, um, you know, it's to build or not to build. Do I build a new installation? I wait for another three or four years till I have a new vessel coming in with a particular engine type that can burn one particular fuel, uh, whether it is methanol, ammonia or LNG. Or do I have, uh, do I convert my existing engine and I'm ready in a few months and I have the vessel back in service. I can meet the new requirements. Uh, I, I can uh, economically, it makes more sense because I don't have a stranded asset. It's, it's in service and uh, I, I say, okay, I deploy my asset now in, in a route for decarbonization. And that's, the, that's where you look at that uh, this decade would be, is a decade of retrofits. And that brings an altogether different challenge because we're used to building uh, engines that are uh, on the shop test, goes for C-Tras and the engine is out for the rest of the life. You do some small upgrades. So now we're talking about big upgrades on the engine to make mm -hmm. it feel flexible. So what have I learned at CMAC this week? Well, that's a technology provider shifting the focus away from high margin equipment sales to new builds. That's an engine maker talking fuel cells. And of course, a momentarily decarbonized decarbonization hub. A disruptive congress for a disruptive moment in how ships are powered. But more than that, a real sense here in Busan that in the technology sector at least, shipping sustainability efforts and moving from rhetoric to reality. Journalist Gavin Lipsith in Busan, South Korea for the CMAC Congress 2023. Now the next Congress is going to be in 2025 in Zurich, Switzerland. And in Gavin's report we heard that one ship owner, CMACGM, has been assessing the potential of capturing CO2 from a ship's exhaust. On board, carbon capture is an idea which is already a reality with some ship owners. Regular Aranax listeners will have heard an episode earlier this year which included an interview with Netherlands-based company Value Maritime. Value Maritime has developed a technology which works a bit like a land-based carbon capture system and a bit like a shipboard sulphur dioxide scrubber, a technology which is already on board hundreds of merchant vessels. As many of you may know, the week before CMAC, I was in Oslo, Norway, for Nor Shipping and moderating the discussions on the Blue Talk stage. These were a set of curated talks I and the Nor Shipping team, as well as an industry committee, had created to reflect the hot topics in the industry. Now, on one of them, there was a topic of onboard carbon capture. Valley Maritime founder Martin Ludovics was on the stage alongside Alicia Fredriksen, who's the founder and CEO of another young company, Seabound, along with Vatslis Sigurd Jensen, who has also appeared previously on an earlier Aranux podcast as the company began its journey to create a modified exhaust cleaning system. Also on the stage was ship owner Solvang in the form of Tor Oivind Ask. Now Solvang has been keen to look at onboard carbon capture, launching a project last year with Vartzilla, and then a week ago announcing it and Vartzilla are part of a larger 13 company consortium, which includes other ship owners. Solvang, by the way, is a gas carrier owner shipping LPG and other hydrocarbons, and is going to put a first carbon capture unit on a vessel on a transatlantic voyage. So here's some snippets 
on that particular Blue Talk, starting with Alicia Fredrickson talking about the launch of Seabound and the onboard tests of her system in the coming weeks. We reviewed all of the different types of carbon capture technologies out there to try to figure out how much could they cost, how much space would they take up, how technology ready, what was the technology readiness level, excuse me, um, and really tried to figure out what could be most specific or most suitable for ship-specific constraints. We built this model to compare and contrast options um, to figure out where we wanted to make our first bet. We spoke to customers, so specifically ship owners, to try to figure out what were their key challenges and questions in relation to onboard capture. And through that, we sort of built our design criteria to figure out what we would be comparing our different technology options against. And finally, we spoke to many experts in the space to see what, what was the state of these technologies and could we team up with any of them. And through this, we picked a second generation of carbon capture technology. It's called calcium looping. So some of the things we found through this research process, as you might know, there's two main steps to carbon capture. So there's the capture phase, where you bind the CO2 to some sort of a binding material. And then there's the regeneration phase, where you separate the CO2 from that binding material. And so these two phases typically happen side by side. Um, it's quite equipment intensive because you have two different parallel processes. And so it's quite capex intensive as well. And so this works really well if you have a lot of CO2, such as for a power plant on land. But it's difficult to take all of this equipment and put it on one ship because it, it will take up a lot of space and it'll cost potentially up to $30 million per ship at least according to a study by the Oil and Gas Climate Institute. Additionally, it's actually the second re regeneration phase, which is particularly energy intensive, and it results in gaseous CO2, which needs to be compressed, liquefied, stored in specialized tanks, and then moved by pipeline. And because ports are unfortunately not equipped with liquid CO2 pipelines yet, we thought that they might struggle to scale quickly with that type of a solution. So we took a different approach at Seabound, again, using sort of first principles thinking. So we actually cut the whole carbon capture process in half, and then we use solids to capture CO2. So we don't need to do compression or liquefaction. So we do the capture phase on board, and then we do the regeneration phase on shore. That way, we can reduce capex by building one regeneration facility for many, many vessels coming into a given location and we can leverage economies of scale and land-based infrastructure for that second regeneration phase. Specifically, the way this works with the technology calcium looping that I mentioned is that we have quicklime, or calcium oxide, which reacts with CO2 to make limestone. And so we basically produce limestone on ships. And, and that's it. It's a very simple chemical reaction. It's a pretty simple device. We do have a patent pending for a compact version, um, but it's, it's not rocket science by, by any stretch of imagination. And so we're continuously feeding quicklime pebbles, reacting in our device, ejecting the limestone pebbles, and temporarily storing that on board, whether it be in containers or perhaps a subsection of a, of a belt carrier hold. Then the regeneration phase is the opposite reaction on shore. We heat up the limestone, separate it into CO2 and quicklime, that way, we can reuse the quicklime to capture more CO2 on another vessel. And then we sell the pure CO2, whether it be to make methanol or to sequester underground. Um, additionally, one last thing I'll say is that we can actually skip that regeneration phase because limestone is a product in itself. 
um, and it could be used for building materials, and this gives us a lot of logistical flexibility depending on, on where we are. Now, while Seabound's technology uses quicklime, Valley Maritime uses a liquid called an amine to pass through the exhaust system. The process the company has, has involves saturating an amine tank with CO2 and then replacing the tank with a tank of unsaturated amine in port. And if you want to find out more about this technology, then look for that particular episode published in late February this year. The third CO2 capture system developed on the Blue Talk panel was Sigurd Jensen from Vatsala. Now, Vartala has, as I said earlier, been developing a system for a while, and he appeared on the Aronax podcast two years ago to talk about the initial testing the company was investing in in its facility in Moss, Norway. Well, two years later, and the company is ready to test the system on board a vessel. Of the three on the stage, Valia Maritime Seabound and Vartala, it's Vartala with the aspirations for the much larger vessels. Capturing CO2 is surprisingly easy. There are lots of different technologies to do that, uh, as uh, the three of us here also uh, show that we, we apply that technology slightly differently. Um, we have a different perspective on sort of the energy usage. We think that if we can harness the waste heat that you have on a vessel, I mean, half of the energy content in the fuel goes out, either with the, uh, with the cooling water or, or with the exhaust. Mm then that whole chain becomes uh, very energy efficient. And we, we expect that we can get to, uh, to 80% capture rate if, uh, if need be. And then, of course, yeah, then we need to liquefy it. But then we're only storing the CO2. We're not storing uh, the solvent itself or the, uh, or the absorbent. But I think for, for shipping, there are so many different applications. Um, I think we will see a lot of different technology solutions as well. But for sure, I, I think we all prove that this works. The technology will work. Sigurd Jensen from Vatsler on the abilities and capabilities of carbon capture. Now, the Vatsler trial is, as I said, going to be on a Solvang gas carrier. So, on the Blue Talk stage, I asked Tor Oivind about the company's project. The project we are talking about now, we're discussing 700 cubic CO2 tanks. 700? Yeah, so which is a realistic amount of CO2 for a vessel of this size for a transatlantic crossing. If we should have a worldwide, maybe double or uh, two and a half time more tank capacity. But this is on a gas tanker which have 21,000 cubics of cargo capacity. So it is, it's inside. It's, it's smaller than ammonia. It's smaller than hydrogen. It's, it's less than the other alternatives. And we go aiming for a 80% or 75% uh, capture on the main engine on this. For one, for one leg? One leg, yeah. yes. And, and uh, shipping cannot do this alone. That's uh, never going to happen. But there's about 200 projects with uh, CCS in the world today. And uh, there is storing place for 50 years, whatever, mm. <laughs> all that we have. So it is actually a quite realistic alternative which can help us in this phase with as lack of green electricity to produce more advanced fuel or, or the alternative. So, so we really think this is really could be, be able, a good way. Do you think way. you're going to be able to sell? I, I, find, I still find it quite an irony that we we talk about decarbonising shipping and pulling, getting carbon out of the air, and then we turn around in the same breath and say, and it's a product we can sell. Yeah. I find that really quite a kind of big irony. But, but do you think you can sell the CO2? Yeah, 
we are working with that also. And when, when we try to describe the project, it's very difficult to say, is the CO2 a value or is it a cost? <laughs> we have been a headache for, for solving this because it is also a product. And it depends how clean it is. And, and I also think if you go and put it in the ground, it will be uh, important how clean it is because it's uh, with, a, with the value you're putting in it. So it could well be, a, be a, uh, also an income. But mm. we, we don't know. And, and uh, for the, I think for the two first vessel, or this vessel, the, this, the first one will always be two, three, four years ahead of the because the, the system around also need to develop. But we hope and think that either you use a bunker barge and we also with mm. getting bunker and delivering CO2 at the same time, that we think will be very nice. Or we go to, to terminal which handle gas anyhow, there could be a pipeline to discharge it uh, also there. So the, the goal with this project is to, to really demonstrate the whole value chains from uh, also the regulation. We are working with the uh, Norwegian flag state to, to get it into a format so we actually get the benefit from it. So, so it is the target is to actually what is the cost and what is the how much can we capture and is it possible to discharge? Where can we discharge? We have 700 ton here so our customers are also very keen on to, to see how this will work and therefore we, we, we think this is a when we design it like this, it is transatlantic, and it is so. It is actually <laughs> not a, a ferry. It is it's a long voyage, and and the amount of CO2 is. But isn't if if CO2 is considered a waste, if you sell it as a product, you're not going to be hindered by CO2 transboundary uh, that is, limitations as well. That is one of the parts we need EMO and the other one to sort out what is the so you don't count it several places. So if you my dream on a long term is you actually deliver it and you, I get fuel back. I come with you with CO2 and I have electricity and I get the fuel back again. Then it's the circle is closed. circular. But yeah. if you're making air fuel, what if, and release the CO2, then it is out in the atmosphere again. So you don't need to be mechanism. So yeah. count half of it or whatever. But that is thing which is sorted out uh, now. And, uh, yeah, it's, it is a question we need to be yeah. sorted. And what's your relationship with the ports here? And Alicia, what relationship will you have to develop with ports? Because you're going to be having to load solids onto a ship. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you're doing it already. What kind of relationships do you need to have with the ports to be able to create that value chain uh, that Tor was mentioning? Well, uh, to be honest, it's uh, difficult because it's all new. Yes. Uh, 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 the stuff you're unloading doesn't have a product code, for example. Uh, how does it work with import taxes? How uh, does it work with VAT? Uh, uh, all these stuff, uh, yeah, uh, by doing so, you learn. Yeah. The good thing is that uh, the last talk was about partnership. Uh, we get a lot of support from ports, from authorities, to get the ball rolling, and to, uh, but also from class authorities uh, to, to to get it done, and, uh, and and what we're doing is making a blueprint in uh, in Rotterdam for starters, uh, that we can uh, duplicate in uh, several other ports, and uh, and uh, so that, yeah, it's good fun to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you having conversations yeah. likewise with with ports yeah. about talking about well, we're going to be bringing all of this into the port, but when we take it out, it's going to be a completely different product. Yeah, 
Yeah, so we're, we're just starting to engage with ports now. I think one of, the, one of the pieces of feedback that I've been excited about is that ports have relatively low amounts of CO2 that they can reduce within port, but they want to be a part of the solution. Um, and, and that's because most of the emissions within the industry are out at sea. And so I think they, the feedback we've gotten so far is they like the decoupled approach that I think both of us have taken because they can actually facilitate the higher volumes of CO2 reductions out at sea by enabling that. Um, so that's, that's one kind of positive anecdote. Additionally, so we're, we're looking primarily at, at container vessels but also at, at bulkers initially because we, use, you know, we move rocks around um, and the bulk industry is more familiar with doing that and has the right port side infrastructure for doing that. So we're trying to find the, the path of least resistance, if you will. Um, so that it's not a big challenge. Um, and then also just to learn from, from our partners. So as you can probably tell, I'm not a shipping veteran by, by any stretch of imagination. And most of what I've learned about the industry has been through discussions and conversations with others who are experts. And so we're hoping that the ports can also guide us through this. Because you're going to have the port costs that are incurred. There's the product costs of mm -hmm. the amine solution or the solids that are going to be cost. There's going to be the, the technology cost on board that's going to be considered by anybody who wants to do that. Going back to what Oyston's comment was about, you know, from a ship owner perspective, looking at all of that, just to looking at then at the sort of savings, the CO2 savings, carbon price, and the accountability of that. That's going to be a real, as you say, headache to sort of work all of that out, isn't it? So how are we going to, how do you envisage sort of a future there where you can engage more vessels with CO2 capture on board when you're bearing all of those costs? I think the, you need to look at what is the alternatives because that decides the cost and when you're looking at reports now you're talking about between 700 and 1400 dollar per ton of CO2 if mm. you go into alternative fuel and calculate that back to fuel you talk about two to four thousand dollar per ton of fuel <laughs> so you see you have a, a huge margin here to, to uh, with the CCS if that is going to work and 20% increase in energy consumption, then you add 20% of a fossil fuel, which is $100 maybe, and, and you can add 100 more for storing and 100 more there, and you are still far below the alternatives. So that was Toroivind Ask from ship owner Solvang, a Norwegian ship owner keen to explore the potential of CCS as a tool to decarbonise shipping. He was on the Blue Talk stage in North Shipping in Oslo with me, along with Alicia Fredriksen, Seabound founder, Martin Lerdeviks, director, co-founder at Value Maritime, and Sigurd Jensen from Vartzilla's onboard carbon capture team. Now, as you may have noticed, there are some regulatory issues that will need to be resolved with onboard carbon capture, not least how it fits into the energy calculations for shipping and how the transboundary shipments of CO2 waste streams can be resolved. And it is the regulatory questions which we will likely be focusing on next with the Aronex podcast, as Gavin and I are in London for the IMO's next meeting of the Marine Environment Protection Committee. On the week before MEPC, it's also the next meeting, the 15th, of the Intersessional Working Group on the Reduction of GHG Emissions from Ships, where the aim is, amongst other things, to agree on a revised IMO strategy to decarbonise shipping. Now, unfortunately, the intersessional meetings are not open to the press, so we can't give you any direct updates from that meeting, but we can from MEPC the week after, when any decisions from the intersessional will be need to be formally agreed. 
So this is it for this episode of the Aronex podcast. Please remember to visit Fathom World to subscribe to the regular newsletter where the stories you will hear on this podcast are delved into in much more detail. Also remember to like and follow the podcast on whichever platform you do. It's easy to do and it won't cost you. And also please share this podcast with colleagues and friends who have an interest in the transformation of the maritime and ocean space. My objectives of the podcast and at Fathom World is to report on the issues as openly and objectively as possible. I don't have a hidden agenda other than to make the use of the long time I've spent in the industry and the interest I have in reporting on the changes that are sweeping through it. Until the next time, my name is Craig Eason and remember you can get in touch with me either through LinkedIn or at fathom.world. Goodbye for now.